Hey guys, welcome back to The Crew, where each week Essence and I ask the other a burning question, playing to each other's strengths, and engage in some healthy debate and discussion. As we always say, please reach out to us to join in on the conversation. If we misspeak, misquote, or misunderstand, feel free to correct us. You can email us at thecommonroomcatch at gmail.com, or if you just want to share some knowledge, we will include it in future segments where we share listener corrections and fun facts. Cue theme music. What's up, you guys? Welcome back. Me and Essence here. I'm Maddie. I'm Essence. We're two friends who love to talk about things from pop culture to politics. So welcome to this week's episode, The Kardashians in the Middle Class. As always, if you can find our title link, let us know. We'll announce eventually if anyone got it, which I'm sure you can imagine why we put these two juxtaposed. But this week, Essence will be asking me about my opinions regarding the Kardashians and who are they, and I'll be asking her about the middle class in America. I interrupted you so you couldn't say your essence. You did say. I did say it was essence. (gasps) (laughs) I didn't remember. (laughs) Yeah, um, for fans again, I'm essence. (laughs) For fans. (laughs) Shut up, mom. (laughs) Um, yeah, so my question for you this week is, why are the Kardashians so special? We have the weekly wrap. Yeah, that's right. Be ashamed. (laughs) (laughs) A weekly wrap from one hour ago. weekly wrap from one hour ago. (laughs) In general, the holidays have been exhausting. And Mm -hmm. my day is all messed up because I don't feel like it's Saturday. Like... Mm. all day I've kind of felt like it's Tuesday or like some random day in the week. And I think because like people don't work on Christmas typically and like the day after, like it's such an odd time where like some people aren't working. A lot of things are closed or like people are like small businesses are closed for the holiday. It's just been like, you know, in school when you'd have a day off and you were so used to having your schedule and you had Monday off for some holiday and you came back and all week, it just felt different. Mm. That's what it's been like. That makes sense. Not really, but I'm hearing You're it. like, fair enough. <laughs> I don't know what you mean, but fair enough. I guess I have, I think I finally mastered, like, being friends with people virtually. Like, I, I felt like during COVID, it was more forced to, like, ask someone to set up, like, a Zoom meeting or something. But now I just feel comfortable, like, just Zoom calling people whenever I feel like it or, like, messenger calling them. That's interesting because people doing that to me gives me anxiety. I won't answer. <laughs> I have, I'm like too socially awkward. Like, well, the people I'm calling know, they'll know that. Like, oh, they know that I'm going to call them, them today at some time. Oh, see, that's fine because I would have mentally prepared and like emotionally prepared to sit down and like how to me like talking on the phone doesn't come naturally. Mm. And like I'll fall into a rhythm, and once I'm talking, I'm fine. But like. We're coming up bet- before that, especially if I haven't talked to them in a while. I'm like, okay, <laughs> what are we going to say? How are we going to start this? We're going to make some like awkward pandemic jargon talk. Yeah. And so let's hit it, Essence. A new catchphrase. 
All right, now it's finally time for the question. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so my question for this week is, why are the Kardashians so special? And why are we all so obsessed with their family? And I don't say we because I'm not obsessed with their family, nor do I really care. But I always think it's interesting that people know every single detail and dramatic story and new love interest of the Kardashians, but like don't know who their senator is. And I <laughs> always found that interesting. So I'm, I'm, as always, interested in your thoughts about normal humans. Normally, I wouldn't call the Kardashians normal. You mean other people's views on the Kardashians? Yes. Seriously. Just a side note on that. One of my favorite YouTube videos. I don't know if I can find it actually, but somebody was doing one of those things, like asking random people on the street to like answer questions, and they'll be like, "Who lives at sixteen hundred Pennsylvania Avenue?" And they'll be like, "Oh man, I don't, I don't know." Like, make up some random answer. And they're like, "Who lives in a pineapple under the sea?" Spongebob <laughs> Squarepants. <laughs> like. It's so funny because it was so many people who were like, I don't know. Oh, SpongeBob. <laughs> like, obviously. <laughs> Child's play. But I actually, <laughs> normally I get really excited when I see Essence ask a question about pop culture, especially things that are just like, I can go on my Snapchat stories and learn a lot. And I know a lot about the Kardashian from like Snapchat. Um, they're like Daily Mail and all that kind of stuff that they have as like, quote, news but I really especially in the past year have just begun to dislike the Kardashians more and more but I think something interesting to talk about because I'm not sure how many people know this but a lot of people think the Kardashians kind of became famous because of the show because of Kim's sex tape being released that's really not true the Kardashians have been a very big and very like rich family rich relatively this kind of been up and down for a long time so, Kim, not Kim, Chris and her first husband, Rob Kardashian, were married, had four kids together Courtney, Kim, Chloe, and Rob. Robert, they call him Rob. Um, and Rob Kardashian Sr. was actually a very prominent lawyer. If you will watch the show, I think it's American Crime Story. It was done by Ryan Murphy about OJ. Um, is it David mm -hmm. Schwimmer? Who plays yeah. Rob Kardashian? Yeah, so that's really when he like he was already pretty, and the family was pretty wealthy. They were good friends with O.J. Simpson and um, his wife, who he was obviously under investigation for murdering. Um, and Kim was really good friends with her as well. So, or not Kim? I keep saying Kim. Chris. Chris was good friends with her. So Chris is also in the show based on the actual trial. So. That's kind of how the Kardashian name kind of started to become recognizable because that trial was so highly publicized and he was one of the main lawyers defending him. So Rob Kardashian Sr. and Chris get divorced after I think it's 10 years of marriage. And then I think about three years later, she ends up marrying Bruce Jenner, now Caitlyn. And they have two more kids together, eventually closer to my age. Kendall in 1995 and Kylie in 1997, which, but so Chris claims, I'm not sure how true this is, that after the divorce, she was like, had $200 in the bank account. They didn't have a lot of money. She didn't really know what to do. She married Bruce Jenner, who at the time had been an Olympic athlete. He wasn't really doing anything. And we can say what we will about the Kardashians and the Jenners. Chris Jenner 
is a businesswoman. She knows how to market things. And so she kind of talks about how she realized that Bruce Jenner, I'm just going to refer to him as Bruce at this time period because that's how he's being marketed, as this former Olympian, the spokesperson, spends the last like money in their bank account to this press kit, sends all this stuff out to get him talking at all these different events. And he becomes like a very in-demand public speaker and motivational speaker. And so then obviously from there, they start becoming wealthier and wealthier. We know that like Kim Kardashian was actually yeah, Paris Hilton's like assistant for a while. I think that's important to notice because I'm not sure how often people just think the Kardashians have just been like, they had this show and then they became popular. They just blew up. They've really been around since the 80s in some capacity. And so from there, like, why are they so special? I have my more, like, what's the word I want? Um, Cynical idea, I guess, of why they're so popular. And I think it's this kind of, convoluted idea of like the American dream in the sense that they are so wealthy, they live these lives, yet they also kind of let you watch it on reality TV for the most part, no matter how edited that is. Like, you know, you see an hour out of seven days worth of footage. They're basically filmed the entire week almost, um, or at least one of them. Like they have contracts to how much they get filmed and it's an extensive amount. So that is a heavily curated hour that you are seeing where they are all ex- executive producers on it. Bill Gates doesn't have a reality TV show. You know what I mean? So I think they live this very lavish lifestyle. And because they have 14 years of reality TV, of you going in their houses, going on vacation with them, them talking to each other, it does really make you feel like you're a part, you're living that life with them. and. You're the way they set up these cameras, it feels like you're in the conversation when they're talking about, you know, the drama with whoever their romantic life is or whichever sister they're mad at. And so I'm not sure. The thing that bothers me in like the question is like, why are they special? I don't necessarily think they're special. Like, I think they've done some really. If someone else did that who didn't come from the Kardashians, I would think they did something really cool. But because they already have like the name recognition, the TV show, the platform that they have, it's not really that impressive to me that Kylie has this cosmetics company, if that makes sense. It's not like she's a teenager who got really into lip glosses and grew it into this like $900 million company or whatever. I mean, but don't you think that's kind of the myth in general of entrepreneurship in the United States? Like, oh, yeah. for example, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs used investment from the government for like, all these products were, like, used for military stuff beforehand, and, like, a bunch of universities researched it, and they turned the product into something like an iPhone or a computer, etc. Except that, like, Kylie's now, I guess, using capital from her family name to make a company. And I feel like we underestimate sometimes how much sway they have, in the sense that if I go to Snapchat and I open up my Snap News. Kylie out. C- Kylie crashes out snowboarding. It's the first thing that pops up on my phone. Um, like, there are a couple more just like random things that mention one of them, or they're like listed in there. Oh yeah, here's another one. Did Kylie really think we wouldn't notice the Kardashians' worst Photoshop fails? 
And that's kind of another reason I have a problem with them. They're not the most problematic people that we have in this universe, but I feel like they constantly get special passes, especially it became apparent during the pandemic. Like the fact that Kim flew all those people to that island, like four, was it 40 people, 30 people or something like that? And she's like, well, we all got tested. And she's posting, everyone's posting all these pictures while people are losing their homes. And I think what really bothers me about that is, yes, it bothers me that Kim is doing it, but it also really bothers me that America continues to like support them and endorse them and follow them and give them such a big platform. Because we could decide that, not like cancel culture, but we could decide that the Kardashians don't deserve to have the fame that they do if we wanted to, like Mm -hmm. as a society, you know what I mean? And just like stop following them and stop buying their products and stop watching their show. And that's really the bait. Like, what do they have besides that? Yeah. I guess also, I'm wondering, in terms of their public perception, I, I think, like, it's kind of well known that they're Armenian. But I've also seen a lot of people, especially, I think it's becoming mm-hmm. more common now, but a lot of people in, like, the beauty industry and also just, like, general POC are often often have problems with the way that they present themselves because they use, like, very... Like, they're purposely not... They're, like, ethnically neutral, but they then use a lot of, like, I guess, stereotypical, like, ethnic features. Like, they plump their lips or they tan their skin or all these other things that a lot of people who who actually have those features, like, can't just, like, wield around in the world with the same privilege. And I think something... Not to say that this excuses people who then, and this is part of my point about them having such a large platform, right? I didn't necessarily know until like I was in college and was like more conscious of like blackfishing. So like when I thought of big lips and thought of big butts and like kind of like some of the hairstyles that they do, I thought of the Kardashians. Like I went to a primarily white high school, right? So then if other people have them who are white, I'm not thinking of anything like when I'm you're the one who told me about this and I had never occurred to me and I mean to some degree like I know Kylie like she did her lips because she was like I wear like I'm I'm a big makeup person and like lipstick looks stupid if you have really tiny thin lips and like not saying to anyone out there listening who's like gotten lip fillers that like to not get lip fillers if you like want lip fillers it's like kind of a different conversation in the sense that Part of what I find wrong with their platform is also the fact that, you know, Kim did those um, cornrows and she called them boxer braids. Oh, yeah. I think she also attributed it to a white woman. But she also, I think there was a a white boxer who did them when Mm -hmm. she like fought and she attributed to them and people were like, whoa, whoa, (laughs) ma'am. This is what confuses me and why I have trouble with the Kardashians a lot of times. They are the definition of any publicity is good publicity. Are you telling me an entire corporation who works for Skims came up with the idea of kimono and mm-hmm. no one was like, you know what? That might be problematic for some. I'm I'm not saying that they like purposely did this to drum up controversy so then people would like look in the brand. But if someone told me, like if definitive proof came out, I wouldn't be surprised yeah. that they had. And because you'll see that a lot of times, somehow I've managed to bring up Taylor Swift in like every episode we've done. But because the Kardashians and Taylor Swift have had so much beef in the past, I feel like this was kind of like bound to come up in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, for example, this summer, right before the season premiere of their final season, all of a sudden that video from four years ago that 
Taylor Swift was like, that's an edited video. And Kim was saying, no, it's not edited. The full video gets released. Who would have had access to the full video besides like Kim and Chris? You know what I mean? Like in days before their final season. It, and that's not the first time that's happened. There's been multiple times in the past where like a couple days before the season, mm-hmm. there's some big breakup, some big rumor comes out. And yeah. I'm not saying, again, like I said, Chris Jenner, brilliant businesswoman. But it bothers me a lot of times that they seem to get free passes for all the stuff. Like there's drama for a couple days about, you know, Kim, like this is our culture. You can't steal it. And like valid, that's valid criticism. But then after like about a week, everyone seems to move on. And it like bothers me that I don't feel like they're ever consistently held accountable. They constantly Photoshop their photos and we've caught them multiple times. There's a thing on my phone. Their worst Photoshop fails or... They're making their stomach skinnier. They're making their butts bigger. They're changing their face. And they have an audience of like very young women a lot of times. And I think we've already talked some about how dangerous influencer culture can be in the fact that if you're scrolling through Instagram and all you see are these highly edited, highly um, filtered pictures that are staged. You don't think the Kardashians have a professional camera that they're using to take these photos they post on their phone on Instagram? And that's all you're seeing that's really dangerous for young girls who think all of a sudden, like, oh, my body doesn't look like that. And like, yeah, sorry, young white girl, your body isn't going to look like that. But it's never promoted that way. And I know this is kind of all over the place. I just think there are a lot of problems with her, their family. And I'm really confused. It kind of, not the same, but like very similar to how I feel about Donald Trump being president and some of the things that he said why he gets all these free passes that like other politicians wouldn't get. It's kind of the same for their Kardashian family. I feel like had another TV actress came out with some version of kimono, (laughs) we wouldn't be hearing from them anymore. I know we kind of that addressed like the first one more so. Why we're so obsessed with their family. I think like a, we're always looking for distractions and it's really fun to get distracted in this life that like, I mean, COVID is kind of different. It's been a different year, but obviously Normally, they're traveling all the time. Turks and Caicos. They're here. They're there. They're wearing. They're at Fashion Week. They're wearing cool clothes. And they are funny for the most part. But I don't think they should get a free pass because they're snarky to each other and we get to watch it on TV. Makes a lot of sense. Especially in the pandemic, the frequent hypocrisy of like telling people to stay home, telling people to wear a mask, taking your private jet and flying 30 people for your 40th birthday to... A Pacific Island that you have rented out for yourself. Like there were a lot of articles that came out to there. Like, don't worry, rich people are immune to the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the case. Like there is such a different standard. And what actually I think is interesting, it'll tie into like one of our next episodes, but people are saying um, one of like two families of two really popular girls on TikToks are the next Kardashians. And One of them definitely comes from a very wealthy family. I'm actually Mm -hmm. not sure about the other one. One of them, um, again, similar to the Kardashians, her dad ran for Senate in Connecticut. Um, They went to a really wealthy, or they lived in a very wealthy Connecticut area before moving to LA. I'm not sure about the other girl. She's from Louisiana, and we'll talk about more in in the TikTok discussion, but but I think it's interesting that with like the end of the Kardashian reality TV show, one of those two families is getting their own reality TV show on Hulu. People are not just obsessed with Charlie D'Amelio. 
the D'Amelio family have their own TikTok account and their own Instagram and their own YouTube channel. Like they are very much following in their Kardashians footsteps of this like family brand. But one of the things I think about the upcoming generation and what we'll talk about more in the TikTok episode is despite some of the failings of TikTok, TikTok is much more socially conscious. Like, and it's a lot to put on the back of a 16 year old girl, the girl who's like the most followed person on TikTok. But Mm -hmm. she has like, she's been very public about body positivity. She spoke out when it came to Black Lives Matter very much so. So I do think that's a good thing about TikTok. I think Mm -hmm. as much as I like don't like cancel culture, it has forced kids, especially TikTok famous children. I say children, mostly people in the ages of like 14 to mid 20s that are famous to really be conscious of not only what they're saying, but to use their platform for good and followers on TikTok and their followers on Instagram very much hold them accountable as well. And I don't feel like we hold the Kardashians accountable. So I'm kind of excited to see how this trend, because I feel like a lot of older people like the Kardashians, as opposed to this like younger TikTok demographic, we can definitely get more into that in the next episode. All right, so Essence, my question for you, why is the middle class disappearing? And I'm saying this, part of my reason for talking about this is definitely like listening to the media, hearing so much about the middle class. And while we can definitely see statistics that say the middle class is is disappearing, I feel like we don't really get into that too much on the news. And so I wanted to hear if you had any more insight into not just what that actually means, but what the implications of that are and why having a middle class is important. And is a middle class necessary for a well-functioning country? Because that's what it seems to be presented as. And a kind of a tangent, I guess, on this question is something, again, that we heard a lot in tandem with the election was the Democrats losing the working middle class, specifically in the Midwest and the South. And are there, is there any reason you think that that is? What are some things we could do to actually get them back or get back the middle class? I'm sorry, that's like the most broad question. So intricate. And we have like 30-ish minutes. Um, But just any really insight you can give, I think it'd be super helpful in understanding that. Yeah. Uh, I actually think this is a good pairing with the Kardashians because I think it hits on kind of two shifts that we're seeing in this next decade like one a changing american dream the wealthy people that we aspire to like to be a kardashian to like be able to fly your whole family to a private island is very different i think than the wealth that we're seeing in decades before um so one the status symbol is changing and secondly i think it shows an increased level of inequality that we're experiencing which is kind of this murky phrase of like middle class is disappearing. It's kind of hinting at mm. that without saying that. And I think before we even get into it, like like what is the middle class? And honestly, like we don't know. Like there's there's so many definitions. Um, and I think like the funny thing is more people actually classify themselves as a middle class person or like in that class than at they actually are. There's mm. a lot of studies on that. And I think it has to do with because there's different ways that we think about middle class like we think about the economic way of being middle class like you're between Mm -hmm. this income and this income or like you're in this income bracket or you're below or under this poverty line and we consider that to be like economically the middle class 
But I would also argue that in America, being the middle class is also a huge status symbol, right? The education that you have, the types of jobs that you have, the social institutions and like clout that you wield in the world are all part of being the middle class. I might also say that it's like the most socially acceptable thing to be, if that makes sense. Like if you don't really want to say you're poor, you might say you're lower middle class if you feel like you might be judged because you have a lot of money you might say oh well we're we're upper middle class I feel like it's constantly this in between stage where like well these people like I'm not poor but you know no one's gonna think I'm like snooty and rich like I think it ends up working out because it is this like American dream yeah and I I totally agree with that and I think that the American dream is predicated on this idea of this like middle class prosperity and that you'll be able to afford everything you need to be successful and comfortable in life. And not only you, but the children that you have will also be able to have those same experiences. And I think our conversation about euphoria and just young people in general are not seeing that dream fulfilled in a lot of ways. Um, and I think people our age and younger and a little bit older would also argue that like there isn't as much hope or even reality. Like this dream isn't real in a lot of ways and it never has been to a lot of people. And so I think like that it might be helpful to start with kind of how did we get these middle class ideas in the first place. And I would say that and obviously I think historians may disagree with this or other people have different ideas of when the middle class officially started in America but I would argue that it started after World War II and after the Great Depression. Really? Yes and I think partially why I'm attributing this is because investment makes a middle class of a country. Mm -hmm. People don't just like gain wealth randomly and then become prosperous and the post-depression era and during the depression to get people out of it and the post-war boom was when our country like invested in citizens at such a high amount i just wanted to ask really quickly because i was really surprised you said at the end of the second world war i when i was anticipating what you were going to say i thought you were going to say it was after um the emancipation proclamation because i would have thought you would have said like as long as and slavery was legal, we can't really have, like, who's an upper class and who's lower class when there's, like, your country's being built on the back of slavery. And so... I don't think there's ever been that recognition. True, true, true. But I, I just found it really interesting because that's actually what I thought you were going to say. I was like, oh, it's going to be, like, when it was no longer technically legal because we know that it was not overnight that all of a sudden... I attribute both the post-war decades and the Cold War and post-depression and partially the Depression, just like that New Deal era, um, with the creation of a strong middle class because that's the first time people had a large new group of people had purchasing power. um, And purchasing power is just like the ability to buy goods and have influence in society in that way. That's how I'm using Mm. that word. And so I'm really saying, and I'm making the strong argument that, again, a class does not just emerge, it's created. And people, policymakers of the New Deal and post-war era were very much trying to rebuild an America that, one, had way more money than ever before. We profited off the war a lot. And when veterans came home, they were promised things like education, housing, 
And then when we were still engaged in a Cold War, we were pumping money into industries like the defense industry. There's a long lineage of the Silicon Valley. And the reason why Silicon Valley exists is because of government investment. And if you like, and I would argue that they have prosperity and these people have prosperity today because they had direct investment. And I would argue that people that experience this level of investment, even though we don't call it government investment directly, we don't call it welfare even though that's kind of what it is. A version of it. It's not like direct to your pocket, but in some capacity. But what is interesting is the same class of people and or the same families of people that were experiencing aid from the New Deal and post-war like defense industry, etc. Those people are no longer experiencing the same level of prosperity today. And I think that's where you see like the... Uh, there's like headlines like um the comeback of like white men and the fact that investment is how they got their jobs uh, how they're able to afford houses and things like that and we are no longer like you were no longer able to just have a high school education and achieve the same level of prosperity as you were in like the 50s or like how their parents could and so like you see a, a backlash of that and I think, yes, they're touching on something super important that wealth is not just created, it's built. And I think that's where you're seeing this new, like, cycle of middle-class people who used to be middle-class are no longer middle-class. That's super interesting. I also find it really interesting. I don't know if this directly links, and I'm not sure why this jumped up in my brain. Part of what I was thinking of is, and I can't remember the year. Do you remember in The Big Short? Fun fact, The Big Short is one of my favorite top three movies and I reference it frequently but it's in the opening credits when he's talking about how it made mortgages so much Mm -hmm. easier to get and it was like these types of neighborhoods that they were all very similar um and I feel like when you were talking about the American dream and the status symbol of it the status symbol of the American dream is really a house that's the primary wealth builder in America And I I think your comment about housing is super interesting, though, because if we think about redlining or designating some districts as being not able to receive these loans from the government, a.k.a. communities with Black people. um, So the way the government got away with that was by creating these maps, right? And they, like, drew these red lines around districts and gave them, like, a gradient from A to D. And, like, each level was different. So, like, if you were an A area, a.k.a. a white area, you could receive these government loans. You're disenfranchising a whole group of people who can be part of this middle class. And then you see the same groups of people who are barred access to those housing opportunities in the 30s to the 50s. You're seeing it again in the Great Recession when they were sold these predatory loans for houses. And it's important to note like who has been systematically excluded from this American dream and who had access to the American dream when it was first created and first invested into are maybe not the same people who are benefiting from it today. And I think um, we can, I mean, Trumpism and populism has it could be its own episode. So I think the larger message that I want to take from that is I think it's just signs that one, there's just a huge amount of inequality and precarity in the world right now. And it's being experienced by mo- most people, except those who may be in the top. And you're seeing a huge, a, a largening 
rift or gap between those who are at the bottom and who those who are at the top. And like with Occupy Wall Street and all these things, we have terms like the 99% and the 1%. And that's, I think, really where we're moving towards. We're not really moving towards there being three classes of people, but you're seeing some who are ultra rich and you're seeing a lot who are really suffering. And whether or not we have the economic tools to measure that suffering, which we do in a lot of cases, I think that almost everyone who is not a part of that class is having maybe a harder time than they were would maybe would have 30 years ago. One thing I found really interesting about what you just said, and I was talking to my brother about this the other day, is numbers being, I don't want to say confusing to us, but like large quantities being very hard for us to conceptualize. So for example, I think a million dollars in time. Yeah, a million days or a million seconds is 12 days. A billion seconds is 31 years and a trillion seconds is 31,688 years. Wow. (laughs) Sorry, I know I brought up that fact, but it still gets me every time. (laughs) And I think that's the thing that really throws me off. Or when we're talking about Bernie Sanders versus Michael Bloomberg versus Trump, people who own millions versus billions of dollars. There is such a big disparity in across the board. And I don't think people even realize how much a billion dollars is sometimes because sometimes it can sound so similar to a million. Sorry, you were talking about ultra rich. So I just like that. Well, I also think that most Americans aren't ever going to experience either. Right. Except that like we tell ourselves that like, if we work hard, we'll get to that. And I, I know this is cynical, but I think like this w- mm-hmm. working hard narrative is just like not true in many cases and is not what leads to this level of wealth. And intergenerational wealth is something that takes time to build. And there's a certain class of people who have experienced generation after generation of wealth. I also think America is odd for constantly pushing that narrative. It's like not just good for like the mental health of citizens. I mean, I went to a boarding school that had people from England, from France, from Italy, from Russia, and the people from Europe would literally comment on how weird it was on how hard Americans worked because most of them like didn't work on Fridays. Like they had three day weekends or were able to travel because of the way their schedules worked out in the amount of money that they made. And so I think it's interesting because the American dream has really, like you said, pushed this knowledge of work harder, be a millionaire. Like it's just guaranteed. If you just work hard enough, if you're not doing, it's like the guy from our last episode with the Grammys. Like if women want Grammys, they just need to step up. And the thing is like the people who are not middle-class owner in the working and lower class, like they're perhaps the people that work the most. They're working all the time. And yet like they have no access to healthcare they have no savings. It's like 40% of Americans, if they were hit with like a $400 emergency expense, like could not afford it. And Whoa. It, like that stat like blows my mind. And it's like people don't have savings. They don't, they can't, they don't have anything to like make sure that their body stays healthy despite working so much. Mm-hmm. And they're renting homes instead of buying homes because they don't have access to credit or loans. And there's all, and I think like that's where I'm getting at of like this increased precarity, and that there's a lot of people suffering right now, and I don't think that level of suffering 
has truly been exposed or talked about enough. And I think COVID has exposed a lot of that. Like there's some classes of people who we've seen are disproportionately suffering. So like we're seeing that people of color are dying at faster rates and it's not like a coincidence. It's because they don't have access to the same levels of healthcare and they're put in these jobs in which they have the most exposure. Or you're seeing sex workers who are cut off from any type of um, unemployment aid because their job isn't considered a job, mm. et cetera, et cetera. That's really interesting. Yeah. And this is a question that obviously you're not going to have like a great fully formed answer to because I don't know if anyone necessarily <laughs> would have. Um, is there a reason you think that the Democratic Party has lost what was kind of the backbone of the party being the middle, the working middle class? Have we lost them permanently? I'm saying we because I personally identify as a Democrat, but just, you know, I feel like we have, or Democratic politicians have made speeches, they have like tried to appeal, they in general support legislature that would be more productive for middle class individuals, yet most white middle class individuals of the working middle class, at least, voted for Trump. We saw from the last election. Yeah, so I have a couple of reasons. I think that is, uh, one, I think this narrative of hard work is pervasive and bad generally, right? Like, I think an answer to, like, why you're not doing as well, like, why could my, why could my dad work one job and be able to support a mortgage, feed his kids, and then maybe send a kid to college and buy a car? Like, why could my dad do that with one job and a high school education? I can no longer do that, yet also working now more hours a week. And I don't think, like, there's, like, our narrative of hard work and, like, entrepreneurial whatever, like, isn't a good enough description as to why that's occurring. And it's just not true. Like, you're working hard enough. It's just there's a lot of barriers in place. And I don't think we've called out those barriers enough. The Democratic Party hasn't. And I also think, like, I I was saying, kind of hinting at this earlier, but by calling certain things government investment or, like, welfare, etc., is is a strategic move created in the 70s to make us hate government intervention and to say, like, a certain class of people aka poor and black people like need government intervention but like no one else really needs that if you work hard enough right like those are the classes of people who don't work hard and like do drugs and like that is why they need that intervention second is the democratic party is not strong right like and there's not really a huge difference in a lot of the policy initiatives between both parties like it's there's a few wedge issues like abortion for example that is very distinct between the parties But for example, like no one supported the $2,000 checks until like this whole weird veto process happened. And now all of a sudden Nancy Pelosi wants to get behind $2,000 checks, but not really because she didn't help get them passed. And so I think if we're moving more towards the center because we think that's what will get people to vote for us without one acknowledging there's a lot of people who just like genuinely don't vote and who are part of these classes And I maybe argue that they don't vote because there's nothing to come out to vote for. Like there's the same policies that are recycled every year and they don't really address the heart of the issue, right? Like we don't talk about food insecurity despite there being people that have so much food insecurity. We don't talk about how people hold several jobs and like that's still not enough to take care of your kids. And there's a bunch of problems and heartache and etc that people are experiencing that neither party ever addresses except maybe trump he he touched on something he understood that people were in pain i would say that like he took that pain and used it for ever some 
bad purposes and then propose policies that would make that pain worse. But he tapped into something that I think many politicians like undervalue and like don't actually talk about. And maybe because they're never, they've never had to experience that. Mm -hmm. Like most of our politicians are pretty wealthy and their families are wealthy. I think that would be really interesting because I've actually just on my own been really thinking about the political divide and political differences that we have in America. And, you know, there was an article in my eighth grade. I don't know if it was like government or like policy or whatever the class was. I mean, just read about like, and the person kind of wrote as a joke, like, should we, should we become to America? Should we become a conservative America and a liberal America? And like, we'll have all the liberals move over to California and that side of the country and all, you know, again, jokingly, but I've kind of been thinking about it and like how how do you reconcile the people who support a Trump platform not to say like which what they're supporting whether it be good or bad I'm just saying like their platform that they are supporting and then mm-hmm. someone who's supporting a Bernie Sanders platform how are those two people going to be happy living in I the mean, same weirdly, country I think there's some candidates that do weirdly tap into that like Andrew Yang like oh I agree I'm just saying like I think a perfect country for like a lot of, I think there's more like four parties, but we don't know about it. You know what I mean? There's like the modern conservative, but like, because the way our two party system is set up, then like no one's ever going to be really be happy because we're always in like one fourth Mm -hmm. of it. And I think like if we're ending on like a positive note, which we should. (laughs) Oh yeah. Essence is hope. We forgot to do that in the last episode. Because this episode is definitely, I feel like, for some of our listeners, probably hits closer to home than others. I mean, depending on how you, parentheses, our listeners, personally feel about the middle class, we will now segue into Essence's hope segment. (laughs) One is directly related to something you just said. I think, one, the two-party system really forces an electoral politics that isn't extremely radical, isn't... It's always searching for this middle, but we don't actually describe what the middle is. Like, I don't think we actually have a good understanding of voters. And I think one way to, like, change that is, like, keep advocating for ranked choice voting in your hometowns. Because it allows fringe candidates that support policies that are more related to the needs that you have. I think that's one. It's picking up steam, ranked choice voting. I also think just more people voting and... And making yourself a voting block is important because people listen to rich people and allow them to influence elections because they come out to vote. They listen to old people because they mm-hmm. come out to vote. We've never tried to mess with Social Security, have we? No, because old people yeah. vote. And I think that's super important, voting. Like, super simple answers are those. And I think larger and harder to get to solutions are that, I think, creating more laws that stop lobbying or this pervasive level of lobbying and money and politics is extremely important because it forces politicians to actually listen to their constituents needs Mm, that's a really good point i i really love how you finish that and i think this episode i mean i know we've only now recorded three episodes but i think more so than others i constantly had more questions for topics for future for future episodes, including, you know, lobbying and A, what it is, why is it bad, why might it be good, like why, what good does it mm-hmm. do? Um, and also, I think 
we should do a um, Patreon watch of the big short and maybe discuss it because, you know, that's (laughs) something I love to talk about. But to our listeners, this is just a reminder that we also really value your opinions and your questions and your interests. So in conclusion to this episode, Thanks for listening. Please reach out to us at thecommonroomcouch at gmail.com. Send us your opinions if you have any additional facts or ideas about what we talked about today. If something we talked about inspired you or proposed questions you didn't you want to know more about, please let us know. And if you'd like to know how to support us in our podcast, check out the description below. We'll include any references that we used in researching and we'll include any additional ones in case you would like to do some more but thanks for listening check out our next episode it'll be episode four decriminalizing drugs and criminal art prices bye